Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to today's program here on New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us. Of course, I don't know if you knew this, but yesterday, Friday the 14th, was National Gardening Day. So I hope you were able to get in some gardening yesterday, of course. It was quite wet. We had some good rain. Uh, So maybe today would be a better day to celebrate don't know there's always something you can do in the garden isn't there we shouldn't be digging in wet soil we've talked about that on the program before of course the um the way that uh soil works when you're digging in wet soil then that does tend to cause some problems uh with compacting the soil compacting it uh, damaging uh, soil structure Uh, particularly in our clay soils. So keep that in mind as we go through spring here and you're looking to plant new things. Just be sure that you're allowing your soil to drain within after 24 hours of a rain or watering, irrigation, whatever it is. Make sure that that soil is well-drained. And usually uh, all soils, well, well well-draining soils, will be drained after 24 hours of the last raindrop falling. We don't want to damage that soil structure. We don't want to ruin the good things that we're doing below the earth. So be sure that if you want to get out and dig this spring, uh, that you're not digging in wet soil. But happy National Gardening Day. Of course, we're a day behind, but no worries. I think if you're like me, any day is a good day for gardening. Uh, well, today, gang, on the program, we've got a big show lined up for you because we are going to be talking about one of my favorite perennial plants. Now, let's go ahead and uh, address that uh, elephant in the studio, if you will, <laughs> the word perennial. The word perennial stands over in the corner uh, like some kind of figure that is going to be there forever well perennials are defined as a plants that can uh, can overwinter in your zone so some plants would never be perennial in your growing zone of course things like uh, tropical plants right Uh, of course we're going to be looking for those wonderful tropical plants Uh, that are coming out we call them annuals right that's why they're called annuals because they don't overwinter they will get hit by a frost but the perennials are plants that can handle uh, the winter and return year after year but it does not mean they return forever so keep that in mind when we're talking about perennials we are talking about about plants that are long-lived in the landscape but we're not necessarily talking about plants that are going to be there indefinitely some perennials are longer lived than others some perennial plants may be short lived some perennials could be described as biennial 
Of course, that would be a plant. We've talked about this before, but in summary, that would be a plant that grows leaves and stems foliage the first year. And the second year it blooms, and in many cases, those perennial, uh, those biennial plants will be finished after they have set their seed. But there are some biennials that maybe come back year after year. I've had great success with foxglove at my place. Of course, foxglove is sown one year and leaves are, are, are produced then it won't bloom until the next year. Uh, but in many cases, my individual foxglove plants have come back and bloomed a third year, in some cases a fourth year. But then after that, they're, they're pretty much toast. But regardless, the plant we're talking about today, one of my favorite perennials, is quite a long-lived perennial. Probably on the short end of its life, you may get three, five years, but a five-year or more uh, return for this plant is quite a long time and I'm talking about well let me not give you the name yet so we're going to talk about a plant here that is going to really brighten up your summer as as if summer couldn't be bright enough already this particular perennial has these pure white flowers with bright yellow centers I probably don't have to say any more That's right, we're talking about daisies today, particularly a great garden plant, an exclusive garden plant. You won't find this in nature. We'll talk about its history, but we're talking about the Shasta daisy, the Shasta daisy. And the Shasta daisy is a great perennial plant with those pure white flowers. Some you're going to find, we'll talk about some varieties that are actually not pure white, but have a great other shade of color that you can also use in your landscape. But there's nothing that, I don't know if there's any other plant that you could describe as a happy flower. Even on the darkest, grayest, thunderstormy day, when Shasta daisies are in bloom, you won't find anything brighter or happier. So the happy Shasta daisy is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Shasta daisy. I love uh, plant history, learning how plants got their names or learning how plants came to be, to exist. And this one has a great story for you. And also we're going to talk about specific varieties. Some of them are old-fashioned, we'll say. They've been around for a long time. And some of them are relatively new. They're so new that the breeder of some of these Shasta Daisy varieties have patented them. Which means that they own all of the intellectual rights to that plant. We've talked about this before. We're not going to go on a gardening rant about that. But regardless, in many cases, some of the new varieties can only be purchased by licensed growers. Propagation is strictly prohibited. So uh, we'll talk about some of the new ones and the features that the newest of the Shasta daisies can provide for your landscape. Of course, we'll talk about how to grow them, what kind of sun, what kind of soil, what kind of position, what do we need to do with them uh, as far as maintenance. And and then, of course, um, we'll talk about propagation, how you can make more of them. It's quite easy to make more of the Shasta daisies. So I guess without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce this wonderful little perennial. Well, some are little, some are tall. Uh, so there's definitely a Shasta for all. 
You can definitely use uh, many Shastas in the landscape in different applications because their heights can be different, their flower forms can be different. Um, but this plant, the Shasta daisy, has a great history, great garden history. A lot of folks are involved, and it actually, the history of this plant includes parts of the state, particularly around Atlanta and the Athens area. So let's start off with the guy who started it all, Luther Burbank. Luther Burbank um, was a Massachusetts native, uh, but he was growing and living in California in the latter part of the 1800s. Around 1890 or so is when he started working to produce a flower with the whitest flower that he could provide his California garden. Now, he knew, of course, that the whitest of whites would do all kinds of things. It would catch sunlight during the day, but at night, the pure white also catches those moonlight beams and bounces that bright moonlight back into your eyes at nighttime. So he was really looking to create this kind of magical atmosphere where nature could dance uh, in this bright white. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that even though there were daisies before, before Mr. Burbank started working on hybridizing, there, there were some kind of wild ones. There's an American daisy, there's a Japanese daisy, um, and there's a number of other daisies. Many of them are considered weeds. They're considered weeds. They pop up on the roadsides and the ditches, uh, maybe along the edges of woodlands or open prairies or meadows. And maybe they weren't the best selection for the garden. Some of them have quite small flowers, kind of weedy-like foliage, and they tend to reseed heavily. And so that right there causes some problems with bringing plants into the garden from the wild. If they're kind of weed-like in nature, nobody would want to grow them. So he started hybridizing these different species of daisy, wild daisies. And like I mentioned, some people say, sort of a a legend now, I guess. Some is myth. Uh, but Mr. Burbank had a Japanese daisy, crossed it with an American daisy. Some other sources tell us that there could have been three or even four different daisies, wild daisies, that were involved in creating this beautiful Shasta daisy. So right there, we see this interesting thing where if there's any plant if there's any plant in our gardens that would not necessarily exist in nature outside of our cultivated spaces, it would be the Shasta daisy. Because it's possible that there were four different parents to create this hybrid daisy. And all of that is happening around the turn of the 20th century. Sometime around 1890 to 1901, he starts producing this whitest flower, as he describes it. So, Mr. Burbank produces this whitest flower, and he gave it the name Shasta, Shasta Daisy. And it does fit because he was doing this work in California near the white snow-capped mountain, Mount Shasta. So here we have maybe an inspiration from nature itself. The name of the plant itself, Shasta Daisy, comes from a mountain, Mount Shasta, covered in white snow. And of course, this plant 
has those pure white snow-like petals all throughout summer. Very fittingly named and, of course, um, uh, gives us the beginnings of this wonderful garden plant. But the story doesn't stop there because, actually, Atlanta has a bit of a history with the Shasta Daisy because nearly 80 years after Burbank introduced this Shasta Daisy, the plant pops up around Atlanta. And the story goes that a florist and nursery owner, Ida May, Ida May found this plant while she was on a scouting expedition in her neighborhood. Definitely a true plants person. I have to confess, I do that from time to time, almost all the time. Uh, my eyes are always watching when I'm driving. My eyes don't always watch the road. That's terrible. Somebody's going to put me in jail. Uh, don't report me. But I'm always seeing things in the woodlands or in people's houses, don't you? Where these certain plants, what is that? That looks different than what I thought it would be. And so the same happened with Ida May in Atlanta. She's going through her neighborhood and finds this particular plant growing well she she would sell a clump of this plant to gardeners or she may sell some stems from this particular shasta daisy for flower arrangements to her customers and her daughter mary ann gatlin she gave a clump to a friend of hers a friend named becky stewart and so when a quite illustrious plantsman a mr uh, bill funkhauser he visited the Stewart's Garden in the mid-1980s. He began looking at this plant, trying to get a botanical name for it. Well, he couldn't find a botanical name for this particular daisy, so he calls it Becky, in honor of Becky Stewart, in whose garden he was visiting. And, of course, the Becky is going to be one of the particular plants that we talk about today because it's easy to find. Of course, we grow it at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But the Becky is one of the most superb varieties of Shasta Daisy. So around this time, though, two other plantsmen named that same flower. Um, nurseryman Bud Heist, who obtained the flower from the Gatlins, was growing it under a different name, Ida May, of course, the lady who found it in, the, um, in her neighborhood. And gentlemen, Ryan Ganey, you may have heard his name, uh, but he passed this flower along to Goodness Grows. And of course, that is in the um, Athens area, a nursery. They named it Ryan's Daisy. So here we have all of this great history, and I'm so glad that this particular daisy, the Shasta Daisy, really we call it Becky now, uh, but that particular flower has even a touch of Southern history. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about how to grow Shasta Daisy. It's really simple. So hang on tight, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. 
Well, gang, I don't know if you're just joining us or not, but if you are, I do want to repeat what I said earlier, which Shasta Daisy is probably one of my favorite perennials, particularly because you cannot find a whiter white in any plant. Well, maybe you could, but definitely Shasta Daisy gives us the whitest of whites that we possibly could find in a perennial plant and they're super easy they are super easy to grow we'll talk a little bit about that we were talking about the history of shasta daisy how it is a true gardener garden plant because it's not naturally occurring uh mr burbank luther burbank in the late 1800s was a a massachusian I don't know, how do you say that? From Massachusetts, but he was growing, living and growing a garden in California at the time when he decided that he was going to try to produce one of the whitest flowers he possibly could. And so he started hybridizing some wild, some were native to the North America, and some were from other parts of the world. But he was hybridizing daisies to produce a great garden daisy, and he succeeded. And we today are reaping the benefits of his hard effort and work. Uh, Then, of course, the plant was picked up, found, uh, growing in Atlanta, and it was sort of distributed through a few other well-known horticultural nursery people, florist people, uh, even going up into Athens. And that's where we left off, that goodness grows up in Athens, um, which I don't believe is open anymore but um, the flower shows up there and then it was sent to Connecticut to White Flower Farms in Litchfield Connecticut where Becky Shasta Daisy was able to be marketed and sold all across the United States and really it's because White Flower Farms and what they did with Becky that Becky went on to become the 2003 plant perennial perennial plant of the year so just 20 years ago now becky has won an award becky shasta daisy has been uh classified as a perennial plant of the year 20 uh, 2003 and here we are with a great variety of new and different shasta daisies but i must say that any new Shasta Daisy that makes it into our gardening world has to be compared with Becky. Becky is one of the best Shasta Daisies that we possibly could find. Now, with that being said, we need to jump into, maybe let's talk about growing these daisies. And then after we talk about how to grow the daisies, uh, we will talk about the different varieties. We're going to talk about some of the old ones, Becky Shasta Daisy included, and we're also going to talk about some of the fairly and relatively brand new ones that you might find as you go on to your uh, adventures in your local garden centers and plant nurseries. First of all, let's put a blanket statement out about Shasta Daisy. Shasta Daisy is one of the easiest perennials to grow. Now, they might prefer to have Moist but well-drained soil, but I'll tell you it's not necessarily needed. We put Shastas all over the place uh, around Northeast Georgia area with folks coming to the nursery and buying plants, consulting with us. So we know that Shasta can survive, thrive in a lot of areas. Let's go ahead and say it. Because the one thing, though, about Shastas is that if the soil does dry out, they will wilt. Now, 
Just because they wilt when it's dry does not mean they're not drought tolerant because they are drought tolerant. They just let you know when they're very thirsty, which is not a bad thing because during a drought, if you know something's thirsty, then you're able to water it. However, even if she dries and loses some of her leaves, once rain or irrigation water returns, she will bounce right back into place. So she doesn't mind the heat. She doesn't mind the drought. But an ideal soil for them is general garden soil, moist but well-drained. In many cases, we have grown shastas in fairly poor draining, not a bog or the edge of a lake. But even in fairly poor draining soil, she still can do the job. Now, you probably do want to fertilize, and of course, a well-balanced, slow-release fertilizer is essential. Remember, shasta daisies are going to be blooming in the summer. Some of them start are starting right now. I'm already starting to see buds on some of our plants. But regardless, knowing that they are going to be heavy bloomers will let you remember, or should help you to remember, to feed them well. If you never feed her and she's blooming all the time, she will bloom herself to death. So keep that in mind. Now, staking might be required for some of the tall varieties, but it's usually not needed. Most of the great Garden Shasta daisies are going to be strong and have sturdy stems. Because sometimes when the flowers open, they can weigh those stems over. But for the most part, she does a good job on standing up tall and proud. Now, the old garden saying is true for Shasta daisies. And that saying is, Keep the knife to her throat and force it to flower. Keep the knife to Shasta Daisy's throat and she will be forced to flower. Without deadheading, without removing spent flowers, you will have less bloom show. Even though many of the varieties we're going to talk about today will bloom and bloom from maybe spring till frost or in some cases uh, early summer, till late summer, even though they are very long blooming plants, like with most perennials, if we deadhead them, if we remove their spent flowers, they will only continue to produce more and more for us. Now, the other thing that Shasta benefits from, and I've talked to you about this on the program before, when we're growing perennials, remember, dividing perennials is almost essential. Maybe not for every perennial, but for most perennials, for most of them, dividing them after a few years of growth is going to reinvigorate them to continue to grow and spread and develop. What you'll notice with many of your perennials is that over the course of three, maybe five years, it depends on the kind of plant you're growing, but you will notice that the center of the clump, you know, when you planted it, it was a small plant. And since then, three or five years later, you've noticed that it's expanded and the clump is much larger. And you may notice right in the middle where you planted it originally, it's sort of dying out. Maybe it's browning. Maybe things are leaning over and twiggy. Not a lot of growth going on there. Well, that's simply because plants grow from the inside out. And so the oldest part of the plant might be quite woody. The oldest part of the plant might be, have become bare. But that gives you an opportunity now to divide that ring. So if the center of the clump of Shasta daisies or other perennials has died out, that's a key indicator that division is not only a suggestion, but it's nearly a necessity. 
and dividing those clumps or dividing that ring with the dead center out, dividing that ring into smaller sections and placing them in areas where you want them to grow is going to reinvigorate the plant and it's going to get them up and moving. So other than dividing and deadheading, there's very little maintenance that needs to be done. The life cycle of a Shasta daisy is to emerge from the earth in the spring with new leaves, new foliage, new stems, and then they will bloom all summer. You're deadheading those throughout the summer. They keep blooming. You keep deadheading. They keep blooming. You keep deadheading. You see the pattern there. And then as we go into the fall time, the leaves uh, over winter will probably turn brown. They'll dry back, and the plant is now all dormant under the soil. Then in the spring, it starts again. So you may have some leaf litter that needs to be picked over just to make sure things look tidy. But regardless, uh, there is most winters when it's fairly mild. It wasn't so much this winter. But my Shastas will actually have very small, low-growing leaves right on top of the ground. We call those basal leaves because they're at the base of the plant. And so it's possible that in a mild winter, your Shasta is green, that there's decent foliage looking pretty good. So with all that being said, Shasta daisies are one of the easiest perennials to grow. But you do have to deadhead. You do have to divide. There are some things we have to do. With that being said, you should get at least three to five years out of any Shasta and some with that proper division every few years even more when we get back we'll talk about some great varieties of shasta daisies you can plant in your landscape Hang on tight. for the world to behold nathan wilson's new southern garden show is on the air your host nathan wilson with lanier nursery and gardens in flowery branch georgia is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener homeowner and apartment dweller can use from vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So gang, welcome back to the second half of New Southern Garden. I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and today we've been dedicating the entire program to talking about that wonderful perennial plant that maybe you already have some. Maybe you don't have some, but we're talking about Shasta Daisy. Shasta Daisy, and of course, like we've talked about the history, Shasta Daisy is not necessarily a naturally occurring plant. Of course, it's a hybrid, a hybrid possibly between two to four different types of daisies. And that really gives us something interesting to think about because you can't just walk through the woods and find um, Shasta Daisy growing. You would have to go to a garden. And of course, we've talked about how easy they are to grow already. If you've missed how to grow Shasta Daisy, be sure to check out this program on our website in a few short hours at NewSouthernGarden.com. And of course, you can find it on Facebook and Instagram and all of the podcast, pretty much all the podcasting apps on your smart devices. Because growing them is so easy, but there's just a couple of things that you may want to freshen up on, make sure you're aware of. Uh, it's really a no-brainer, a no-brainer perennial, Shasta Daisy. She is going to do great for you. We didn't talk about the amount of sun that is required, but being a daisy, 
Daisies are generally a uh, wildflower, uh, meadow, prairie type plant. And of course, you can imagine they don't mind the sun. If you give your Shasta daisies as much sun as possible, then you will have a wonderful bloom display. So at least six to eight hours of sun for maximizing your blossoms. But if you have part shade, don't worry, because Shasta Daisy will do just fine there in the part shade. She may not get as tall as she's supposed to or could, but she may not bloom as well or as much as she could, but she will grow. And I think that in those part shade situations, right along the edge of a walkway or the edge of a, of a shrub border or something, Having that bright white would really brighten up even a part shady site. So let's talk about a few of the, some some of my favorite varieties, but also uh, some of the classic varieties that have been around for a while and some of the newer varieties that are being produced uh, on a year-by-year basis, it seems like. Every year that I look over plant list catalogs and availabilities with certain growers, I see another new Shasta daisy. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You've got to love these Shasta daisies. So some of the old-fashioned, well, I'll call them old-fashioned, but it doesn't mean that they're not great plants. They've just been around a while. We've already mentioned Becky, and Becky has her roots in Atlanta, in Georgia. Then it was grown in Athens, and then, of course, it was sent up to Connecticut where it was marketed and became the 2003 perennial plant of the year for good reason. Because Shasta, uh, Becky Shasta Daisy has very sturdy, strong stems, upright stems that the flowers are born on, and they're quite cold hardy at zone five to nine, so no problem here in the southeast, of course. In our area, we range from six to eight, depending on how close or far away from the mountains you are, Um, but they have the classic The classic Shasta daisy flower, very large, three to four inches in diameter, white petals and yellow centers. And the plants themselves can become quite tall, but it's not really all of the leaves and the stems that are so tall. It's really those flowering spikes. The flowering spikes on Becky could be up to three and four feet tall and maybe two to three foot wide as far as its width goes. But regardless, think of that size with three to four inch blossoms on it. Oh, it's going to make a presence. So don't forget to put Becky in your uh, Shasta Daisy border. Then, of course, there's Alaska. Now, Alaska is quite one of the, lo- maybe the longest lived. It's, in, it's been around a while. It's so, it's so stable of a variety that you can actually grow Alaska from seeds. If you walk into your local garden center like Lanier Nursery and Gardens, we have uh, Alaska growing, uh, Alaska seeds there. But then you may also go to uh, the box stores. If you see a Shasta Daisy on a seed rack, usually... Usually, it's going to be Alaska. And for good reason. She's quite tall, too. She may be two to three foot tall, uh, possibly shorter than Becky. But uh, she has large three-inch blossoms. And, of course, the difference here is that Alaska Shasta Daisy has these frilly white blooms. So it's almost like they've been curled and cupped and uh, what's some other words we can use, fluted or whatnot. The blossoms themselves, the petals themselves on the blossoms give you this frilly, fringy effect. And of course, with a large flower, it's very attractive. 
Now, these, the Alaska, uh, are very cold hardy. Some sources say they could be grown as cold as zone three, which gets like negative 40 degrees or something way down there. So if you're growing, a, uh, looking for Shasta daisy in very cold parts of the world, be sure to check out Alaska. I guess it's appropriately named. You know, covered in white like snow and can handle very, very cold temperatures. Now, the one of the last older fashion varieties that we want to talk about is called snow cap. It's been around a while, uh, quite hardy, zone four to zone nine. It's got the pure white flower, kind of the classic look. But the beauty of snow cap is that if you have a small landscape or a small bed or you need a short row of flowers, unlike Becky in Alaska that can be several feet tall when they're blooming, snow cap is usually up to 14 inches when she's blooming, not even two feet, not even a foot and a half. So snow cap is going to be tight, it's going to be short, but you're still going to have those pure white classic Shasta daisy flowers. And they're quite narrow too, it may be a 12 inch spread. Of course, I think trying to uh, put a measurement on a Shasta daisy spread is kind of pointless because if she wants to push a little further out, she can. Um, there's really nothing kind of stopping her, uh, but definitely it's not going to spread as quickly as the Becky or the Alaska might. So, the old-fashioned kinds, what I'm classifying as old-fashioned, is Becky, uh, Alaska, and Snowcap. They either all have uh, different flower form uh, or they have different sizes. And that just shows you that no matter where you're growing, what size you need, what kind of flower you need, you can find a Shasta that will fit. Just remember, those three have that pure white flower with a true yellow center. And the reason I bring that up is because talking about the new varieties, some of the newest ones that are still on a plant patent, which again means that propagation is prohibited until the plant patent runs out. But one of the most unusual, let's start talk about two. Two of the most unusual plants have, instead of a, um, a white flower, they have quite a yellow flower. The petal itself is sort of a pale yellow, a creamy yellow. One of the best ones for that is called Banana Cream. Banana Cream, number two, actually. Banana Cream 2. Don't look for Banana Cream 1 because it did not take so well. So Banana Cream 2 is an improved variety from Proven Winners. A couple of Proven Winners... Um, uh, Shasta daisies have made the list this morning, and banana cream is one of them, particularly because of that creamy yellow petal rather than the pure white. It's got a great name. It's cr it's like a creamy banana. Perfect. Uh, but it does have the classic yellow center, is hardy to zone 5 to 9, 5 and 9. Um, it's almost a double, in my opinion, just because there's a lot of petals, um, and some of the petals are sort of turned a bit, uh, but it's not a true double. We'll talk about a really good double shortly. Um, but it does have a just a chock full of those creamy yellow petals, and it's really nice. So it blooms fairly, uh, fairly early, maybe early summer into late summer. Again, with the Shasta daisies, be sure you deadhead, and banana cream number two will really take off. It becomes a bit beefier plant, maybe up to 24 inches when it's blooming, 24 inches tall. So not 
too far out of the range of the Alaska that we talked about, not necessarily super short. We'll talk about some new Shastas that are very short shortly. And then another proven winner's variety is called Daisy May. Great name, Daisy May. Um, It's one of these continuous bloomers. It blooms great. And it blooms... um, so well that actually flower buds will form along the stem. There's so many petals. It's got the classic large white daisy flower with yellow center, but you've got flowers on tops of the stems, and then you've got side branches coming off of those stems, producing even more flower buds. It has flower power, folks. Be sure you look for Daisy May because if you're looking for a heavy bloomer, well, Daisy May sure is going to do that. It's not a double flower. It's got a lot of petals, uh, but they're sort of perfectly placed around the plant. And they're fairly short, ranging between 12 to 24 inches, probably with the tallest flower spikes. You could get up to two feet, which is still really not that tall. Um, But... Let's go ahead and talk about a daisy, a daisy, about a double daisy. And this one is in the name. It's called the Lancaster Double Angel Daisy, the Double Angel Daisy, quite cold hardy, quite cold hardy, can go down to about uh, zone 3B or so and is very cold hardy, which is wonderful for folks who are growing much further north than we are. But the beautiful thing about Double Angel Shasta Daisy is that it has those pure white flowers, but they, the petals dangle downwards. They point downwards, and they are frilly. So you've got this fringy effect hanging off, uh, sloping down, pointing towards the soil. And then right at the top around the yellow center is a, fr- a ring of fringe, a ring of white fringe. So you've got frills hanging down and a fringy white ring right around that yellow center. Quite unusual and quite unique. I think that if you are looking to grow Shasta Daisy as a cut flower, which is a wonderful cut flower, then you do need to think about this angel daisy. It can really add some character to any cut flower vase. So this one is a double and it stays fairly short. Even though... Uh, With its flower at 18 inches tall, uh, the plant itself may only be about 12. So once the plant is in flower, we're looking at about a foot and a half. If you decide to use some of these shorter varieties for cut flowers, that's okay. Just know that the stems won't be as long, which means you may not have as many options when you are arranging the flowers in a vase. And then lastly on the list is Darling Daisy. Darling Daisy is cold hardy to zone 5, which is still quite cold hardy, especially with these uh, Shasta Daisies. But it's very compact and is another continuous bloomer. Now, even though deadheading may not be as essential on some of these, I will go ahead and tell you that deadheading your Shastas is going to be the thing to do. Not only to encourage more blooms, but also the thing about leaving uh, spent flowers behind is the brown deadheads make the other fresh blossoms look bad. <laughs> you know, always when you're walking through your landscape, pinch off those deadheads, have a a pair of shears in your pocket so you can remove them. But the Darling Daisy, uh, which is uh, got the white petals and yellow center, is going to be about 16 inches tall when it's flowering. That's even shorter than the Double Angel Daisy. So 
again, with all these varieties from the uh, banana cream number two with its pale yellow to the Daisy May with its continuous double stem almost as blossoms all over the place, double angel with those frills and fancy look, and then the darling Daisy with its compactness. All of that is going to be a case for you to be able to grow any of these in any garden space. Putting the whitest of white flowers, the Shasta Daisy, into the garden is going to be a wonderful thing to do. Well, gang, we've got to go to a break, but when we get back, what can you grow with Shasta? I will tell you some plants that I love to grow with Shasta that are going to make wonderful companion plants. So hang on tight. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, today here on New Southern Garden, we're giving growing Shasta daisies a go. We've already talked about how easy they are to grow. They can tolerate a number of conditions. They prefer sun, but could do part shade. Uh, They like well-drained soil, but they don't have to have moist, well-drained soil. They can get by. And of course, they're quite long-lived. Many of them definitely are going to reach three years, uh, most probably five and beyond. So Shasta is one that if you don't have Shasta Daisy in the landscape, then you need to you need to look into these. And we were just giving you a number of different varieties. Uh, there was the Becky and the Snowcap and the Alaska. All of those have different and unique characteristics, but uh, they've been around for a long time. And I'm glad to see, though, that plant breeders and introduction plant introduction folks are still working with Shasta, giving us even more to choose from, like the Banana Cream Number no. 2 with its uh, nearly... Uh, banana colored (laughs) uh, petals and the daisy may uh, which blooms all the time and has side shoots that bloom all the time the double angel daisy with its frilliness and the darling daisy with its tight compactedness for small spaces so be sure to be on the lookout for these new and old varieties but you know growing shastas alone growing shastas alone is never that fun Well, I don't know. I think I'm eventually going to have an entire bed or garden just for the different Shasta daisies. But sure's a lot of white. So what else can we add? What else can we add to our landscape uh, beds with Shasta? Uh, As far as companion plants go, what kind of plants are going to look really good and stand out along with the Shasta? Well, I say the first place to start with Shasta is any of your shrub borders or foundation plants. If you have a, say, 
front bed on either side of your front door, and you've got Laura Pedlum and gardenias and abelias and even roses, and they're just your foundation plants. Shasta works well there. And of course, we've already talked about the variety of sizes that you can use there, and they do blend in well with any of your shrub borders. But then to talk about individual plants, any of the other perennial plants that are going to be blooming in the summer are great candidates for Shasta. It's really hard to mess up a color scheme with white. White just adds that little fleck, you know, just the little flecks and and dots of brilliant uh, uh, white uh, throughout your plant or perennial border. I'm getting tongue-tied here. But one plant in particular any of the salvias. If you know salvia, salvia has those tall spikes. Usually we've got pinks and purples and and blues. And the shape, what I like to do with the salvia and the um, uh, daisies is to contrast the shapes of their flowers. The daisies are those round discs. And of course, the salvia is a tall spike. And those two shapes together can look really good. Then, of course, bee balm. Another reason to use Shasta uh, with other plants is because Shasta is a great pollinator plant. You will see a number of butterflies, bees, and insects come gather around the disc flower of Shasta daisy, and they love, pollinators love having diversity, being able to hop from one flower type to another flower type and receiving all the goodness and the nectar and the pollen that they're looking for. So, of course, bee balm is a wonderful selection. Bee balm is in the mint family, so it spreads and it runs and it creeps and it crawls but they are an awesome um, pollinator plant they have these tube-like flowers nearly uh, look like a honeysuckle uh, whirled around the stem of its plant and they come in a variety of colors some are white but really we've got pinks and purples and reds um, and lavenders and the color combination with white is really endless there Cone flowers. Now, I would like to use cone flowers with Shasta daisies because they're great pollinator plants, but also because they too are a disc flower. So what we're doing is we're putting a cone flower beside a Shasta daisy flower that looks similar. They have a strong center with petals hanging off the perimeter, the circumference of that disc. But the difference here is the cone flower's disc rises up like a cone and the Shasta daisies disc is flat so that's a great contrast but then of course it's the color thing so daisies are going to be white and your cone flowers might be purple they might be white there are some great white cone flowers you could go for a monochromatic flower scheme there Um, but the contrast could happen with the color of the petals themselves now blanket flower now this would be a shocking plant to use but it's another great pollinator plant and the blanket flower is an North American plant Uh, wonderful shades of yellows and reds and oranges and they too have that kind of disc like flower where the petals are running around the circumference of the strong disc however right on the tips of the petals of the blanket flower you have sort of this fringe you sort of have this pinking sheer look and little rough serrated edges maybe curly petals and so uh, even though they have a a similar form of flower uh, from the blanket flower to the daisy you do get some great color contrast as well as some unique inflections and now for a completely different uh, flower that has 
a different shape of bloom, a panicle blossom, which of course a panicle sort of means a cone shape. This is a very loose cone-shaped flower. Uh, this is the Russian sage. Now the Russian sage is going to look good with the Shasta daisy because of the difference in their flower shape, but also their color. The Russian sage is a, a different shades of purple. Depending on the variety you find, you're going to sort of have a lavender color, and that always looks really good with white. Well, at least in my opinion, it looks really good with white of the Shasta daisy. But again, they're going to have different flower forms, different color, and with the Russian sage, it is blooming around the same time, uh, late summer, early fall. Those are blooming around the same time that, uh, well, really Russian sage can can be trimmed and, and, and rebloom, but they're going to be showing their flowers off same time so great companion plant as far as time of bloom is concerned shape of flower color of flower russian sage is going to do it and russian sage is not too picky about soil as long as it's not too wet uh the sages in general are, are fairly drought tolerant so it grows right alongside the same situation that a uh, shasta daisy might um the other thing i just love about russian sage is the fragrance is not a a pleasant fragrance per se, but it does tell you that the deer don't like it. Uh, Shasta daisy doesn't seem to be affected much by deer. You may have a different story, but I've yet to hear multiple stories. Really, I can't think of one in particular where deer have been a problem. Uh, a couple last plants that look great with any of the Shasta daisies is going to be catmint. Catmint, of course, is another purple flower. Uh, they bloom for a long time like Shasta's. Uh, some of the catmints may be three foot tall. Some can be much shorter. We should probably have a whole episode on those sometime. And then the black-eyed Susan. Black-eyed Susan has that perfect disc, just like a Shasta. But the thing I love about a Shasta with a black-eyed Susan is they share the yellow, right? The yellow is in the center of a Shasta daisy, and the yellow is on the petals of a black-eyed Susan. Of course, the center of black-eyed Susan is a uh, black cone right there in the middle. So great contrast and great repeti repetition of different colors and whatnot. So there you have it. There's a few things, of course. Any of your shrubs look good with Shastas, Salvias, Bee Balms, Cone Flowers, Blanket Flower, Russian Sage, Catmint, Black-Eyed Susan. They all work out. Well, gang, I hope that today you've learned about... You've learned about Shasta Daisy. Give them a go. Go check out the different varieties. For WRWH 93.9 and New Southern Garden, my name is Nathan Wilson, and I hope you stay well and grow well this weekend. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. 